0: My name is Dr. Adie Ray. I publish under the surname Wilson Poe. I am a neuroscientist and a pharmacologist who has studied cannabis for my entire adult life. We must work untiringly so that our children are obliged to learn it. Because it is only through that, that we can safely
1: protect Listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Special thanks to our current annual educational event sponsors, including the Workshop, CBD National, and Green Earth Medicinals. If you want to learn more about our Curious About Cannabis events, go to cacpodcast.com/events. And if your company would like to become an event sponsor, visit cacpodcast.com/sponsors to learn more. Hey, everybody. This is Jason with Curious About Cannabis. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. So today I am really, really excited to finally be connecting with a researcher who um, also has been spending a lot of time in Oregon that's been doing work ever since I've been working in the cannabis science field. I'm here with Dr. Aidy Ray. Um, Thank you so much for being willing to carve out time to speak with me today. Like I mentioned um, off camera, I'm really, really stoked to finally cross paths with you and talk about um, not just recent research that we'll get into that you've released, but really um, a lot of things that you and I have both sort of been seeing as these, uh, you know, the medical cannabis industry in Oregon transitioned into recreational. There's a lot of interesting things around um, cannabis science and pharmacology that's that's got a lot of us asking a lot of questions, and you're there doing a lot of really important work to try to answer these questions in practical, meaningful ways for people. So Thanks so much for coming on the show today.
0: Jason, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for the opportunity.
1: Absolutely. And to, you know, uh, any of our listeners in Oregon, I'm sure are already familiar with you, but for those outside of Oregon that are tuning in, that might be kind of new to some of your work, do you mind uh, briefly just describing some of your background and kind of how you've gotten involved into this world of cannabis science we find ourselves in today?
0: Yeah, of course. So I first started studying cannabis and the endocannabinoid system as an undergrad. I was at Washington State University just across the river from Portland in Vancouver, Washington. Um, And I went on to get my PhD also from Washington State University and spent some time on the main campus in Pullman. Um, From there, you know, I I continued to have cannabis and the, especially the interaction of cannabis and opioids as a part of my dissertation work and all my postdoctoral work. So I did a handful of postdoctoral positions around the world and finally, you know, made it back to Oregon, um, in 2017. Um, I had a strange commute between Portland and, and St. Louis for a while where when I was working at Washington <laughs> wow. university. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was really important for me to get back to Portland, um, just, Culturally and environmentally, I really wanted my kid to grow up here. Um, so when I when I came back in 2017 is um, when I started to branch out, you know, more, um, you know, because up until that point I had been, you know, very strictly involved in the, you know, traditional academic setting with grants from yeah. the NIH, and, and I st- I'm still funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse. That's how I pay my salary. That's how I, you know, run my lab and do my studies here. I'm currently a assistant scientist at Legacy Research Institute, which is a part of Legacy Health. Uh, So Legacy Health is one of the bigger hospital systems here in Oregon. Um, So I still do all of that very traditional, you know, grant funded academic research. Um, but in 2017, I was invited to be a keynote speaker at the Cultivation Classic Cannabis Competition. Um, and that's how I came to be incredibly co- close colleagues with the you know, sort of event staff and competition staff um, who, who ran that event, um, most notably Jeremy Plum and uh, Steph Barnhart, um, who are still some of my like, closest friends and colleagues today. I treasure them. Um, So in 2017, I I spoke at the cult classic and saw what was going on there. And immediately after I came off stage, I said, you guys, this is incredible. How can I be involved more deeply? So from that point forward, they kind of couldn't get rid of me. And, um, you know, together as a team, we really revamped the way that we evaluated cannabis up until that point, you know, it was very similar to the way that other cups review or, you know, uh, assess their, their cannabis, you know, how much did you like this? You know, that was pretty much it. Um, But with my, with my help and the help of my team, you know, we kind of like, developed a software company to create new tools to give to our judges to ask them, you know, very specific questions, not just how much did you like this on a scale of Mm -hmm. one to 10, but really delve into, you know, how much did you like it? How much did you like the aroma? How specifically did it make you feel? What kind of activities would you pair with this flower? So we, we really, you know, came together to increase the fidelity of the data that we're collecting about this. And what was really important to us from the beginning was to do that in a way that was anonymous. We really wanted to yeah. protect the identity of the judges. You know, we know that there's a weird legal landscape with, you know, um, with cannabis and, and people are, are, of course, like very sensitive about giving away, you know, really private information. So we wanted, it was really important to us from the very beginning to make sure that we could collect this information anonymously. Um, so yeah, so I think that most people, if you're in Oregon, and you have heard of Dr. 80, it's probably because of the cultivation classic. Yep. So um, and there are some, you know, adjacent things and lots of education and outreach that we try to do. Um, and of course, our aim was always that the world would would know about cultivation classic. Um, but uh but yeah, that that's where most folks in this community would probably know me from. It's more from cult classic work than than my other sort of traditional academic publications.
1: And what did some of that um, early work look like? Like I remember um, some of the kind of first things I saw on social media from you were education around opioid interactions with um, the endocannabinoid system and things like that. Um, so I did want to make sure we we did backwards into into all of that, because I'm super fascinated into that as well. Um, what did some of that work look like? What were you focusing on? And what were your takeaways after getting through that early work and, and coming back to Oregon?
0: Yeah, well, I should also emphasize that it was both early and current. That's to this yeah. very day that is still my main hypothesis in my in my academic work is that we can use cannabis to reduce our reliance yeah. upon more dangerous substances like opioids. So in the early days, what it looked like was me watching rats run around in the dark. Yep. <laughs> <So> <laughs> yeah. In science, science, we call that behavioral pharmacology, exactly. right? Yeah. Um, so, so I would administer, you know, um, cannabinoids and opioids either alone in combination in rodent models um, to see, you know, what does this combination of drugs do? And so. Um, from the very early days, you know, all of my mentors were kind of opioid people who were studying opioid tolerance and the, mm. the, the neural mechanisms and cellular mechanisms that cause our brains to develop tolerance to opioids because tolerance is really dangerous, right? Yeah. When you have a, a, a substance that has potentially lethal effects if you take more and more and more of that dangerous drug, then of course, that's a real risk. And that's precisely why we have, you know, the overdose epidemic. So, you know, that those were all of my, my um, teachers and my mentors were opioid people. And I sort of was the weirdo who brought in this, you know, um, idea of, well, I'm noticing that, you know, people are using these substances at the same time, cannabis is also, you know, a pain reliever. So what's happening exactly um, when people are using these drugs at the same time? And my primary um, sort of motivation was actually not chronic pain patients. It was people Mm -hmm. who were um, using illicit heroin and illicit yeah, fentanyl yeah. wasn't really a thing at the at that time but um you know I, I had spent a lot of time in british columbia where you know cannabis had been decriminalized for many decades um or at least one decade and um you know it was extremely common that people who were using heroin on the downtown east side meat was everywhere yeah. um so i was particularly interested in like well what's happening here it, like what is the interaction here so Um, Over the years, you know, I used a a whole slew of techniques from behavioral pharmacology. Um, I did a postdoc that um, focused exclusively on electrophysiology, which is how how neurons, you know, use electricity, you know, along, you know, it's like a big your brain is a yep. big circuit, right? So we our brains are, our brain cells are communicating both electrically and chemically. So, you know, I spent a whole bunch of time getting training and doing a bunch of experiments, looking, you know, into a microscope and stimulating things electronically to see, well, what's happening, you know, at, at the neuronal level, specifically in brain regions that are responsible for pain relief and opioid tolerance, yeah. right? That's always kind of been the, the major sort of center of my universe is, you know, the the parts of the brain that are responsible for relieving pain and producing opioid tolerance. So, and then, you know, once I came back to the United States, I I, um, started looking at, you know, both the interaction of chronic pain in -hmm. the context of using opioids and cannabinoids, Um, and so over the years, you know, the, the idea has always been the same, that if we can use these things together at the same time, then we can reduce the amount of opioids that we need. And we might even be able to replace opioids entirely, yeah. pro- provided, of course, that the cannabinoids can provide sufficient pain relief. Right. Because that's the thing is like there's nothing that works like an opioid, right? It yeah. is an incredibly powerful drug. You know, it, it, to some extent, it is an anesthetic. Right. Because it's turning off, not just the sensation of pain, but it's turning off kind of all sensations. Sensation. Yeah, exactly. That's the definition of of anesthetizing someone is it's all sensation. Um, and we know that it also numbs the affective component of pain, yep. so people feel nothing emotionally, and that's part of why you know people who live in social poverty are yep. you know using opioids because it's not just uh, you know to treat physical pain when when someone is using illicit opioids. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so that's why we see that regions of the country, which have both economic and social poverty, those regions tend to also have really bad opioid problems because people are trying to, you know, get rid of that sensation. Um, so that, that, that work continues today. So here at my lab at Legacy, um, I have I hot box rats. So I have inhalation vapor <laughs> chambers um, nice. where we're studying the effects of whole plant cannabis vapor in combination with opioids, um, both alone in combination with opioids. So what's interesting about the vapor field is that for a long time, you know, everything we knew about how cannabis works in animals, which we then extrapolate to humans, um, we were injecting drugs, right? Either under their skin or into their belly. And when you do that, they don't have the same effect as the way that people take the drugs or the substances which is most of the time, they inhale them. And when they inhale them, they're not just um, inhaling this perfectly synthesized molecule that you can order from Sigma, right? (laughs) It is a whole host. Of really complex molecules that have genuine important interactions. So here at my lab, we're trying to take a very, very strict translational approach. We want it we want a high degree of face validity, um, which means that what my animals see yeah. is what it looks like in humans. Um, so so yeah, so that that work is ongoing and you know we're still, you know doing our best to continue to work with the NIH to, you know, keep the lab funded for projects like that, both for vapor safety, as well as interaction between opioids. But what's really interesting is that, you know, over the course of my career, my hypothesis has never changed. And, you know, I used to sit down next to someone on an airplane, you know, in grad school, and they would ask what I would do, and I would explain it, and they would be you know the the reactions were mixed, <laughs> but <laughs> for the most part, not very friendly. <laughs> yep. Um. And now, of course, like the climate has completely changed, right? So I, I, yeah, yeah, I've had a front row seat to really witnessing um, the destigmatization of cannabis, especially when it comes to the opioid you know component it used to be incredibly controversial and now it's common knowledge really grateful that our work you know my my mentors my work and my students work has has played a meaningful part in that journey
1: yeah absolutely and it's i mean it's um it's so huge on multiple levels i'm a chronic pain patient myself and i you know something i always tell people you said you know there's nothing like an opioid i said cannabis you know it has a good uh ability to sort of turn down the volume of pain but it will never mute the pain and and that's like a critical difference that I usually explain to people just from my own experience um but reducing that volume if you can do it enough that your quality of life improves substantially that you can go about your day and handle your functions and um and all of that then um that's very 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 powerful um so that's something I relate to very personally Yeah. Um, and this also oh go ahead
0: that That's what we see in our patients also. So we've published a couple of papers. I have a very close collaborator in Philadelphia who's a part of this gigantic orthopedic clinic. Um, and what was really cool was when Pennsylvania's medical program first came online, we were there already sort of waiting for legalization to happen. So we were able to structure a patient registry, which was essentially prospective in nature. These patients had been at the orthopedic clinic prior to legalization. My colleague, you know, signed their card and they got access to cannabis and we could watch what happened to them over time. And, you know, it does all the things that you're familiar with, right? It does improve like the actual, you know, sensation intensity of pain. But importantly, it improves physical health, mental health, and quality of life. That's the real kicker: is that opioids tend to not improve quality of life. They definitely address the physical component of pain, but they don't often address the sort of holistic human yeah. experience of living in the presence of chronic pain, yeah. right? Because that—that's a big shift, you know. In in North America, especially, we have such a service oriented culture yes yeah. that you know like you can yelp your doctor that's kind of messed up right it is. yeah <laughs> it's
1: weird It's weird yeah
0: so there is an expectation in north america that like you are here to do a job doctor and your job is to get rid of my pain and if you can't mm-hmm. get rid of my pain then i'm a dissatisfied customer and that's simply not how pain works right it's really about being able to accept that these are the cards that you've been dealt. So what is the best way to play those cards? And opioids are not a very good ally in playing the game with uh, pain. Um, Cannabis happens to be a very good ally in improving quality of life and enable people to walk with the pain, live in the presence of the pain, and have it not be so negatively impactful on their overall life.
1: That's, yeah, no, that's a perfect, perfect way to um, sum that up. And I, you know, it's, it's strange that as a society, we've really lost sight of what healthcare, whether that's, you know, uh, physical health care, mental health care, like what the point of all of it is, you know? Um, and you would think that it, it should be common sense that the point is to improve quality of life. Like at the end of the day, um, do you enjoy being here or not? <laughs> you know, in the your time here is your most limited asset you have, and so improving the quality of that time—it um, seems like it ought to be number one—and um, it, it does. It takes some kind of retraining uh, to rethink, and I think that's a, a big um, sort of problem around uh like lower level education and the way you know i think about how as a kid i was brought up and taught about um medicine and diet and things like that and there are these very disconnected disjointed concepts of you eat so that you get full and then when you get sick you go to the doctor to get fixed Mm -hmm. but there's never this really uh like you said a full holistic conceptualization of how am i living my life and how does that influence the quality of that time spent and everything yeah um I think
0: another, another component of that is that, you know, you, you, you really nailed it. Like when you're sick, you go to the doctor, right? That is the the authority figure. Whereas, you know, in a sense, you're entirely giving up your own power, your own contribution to the process. You're it's, you know, like an external locus of control, right? Everything outside of me can influence me rather than thinking about how can I fix this for myself? And maybe I can get some information from doctors Mm -hmm. and maybe I can, you know, um, recruit some allies like medicines or pharmaceuticals or plants. Um, but ultimately, um, you know, and there's many reasons for this, but we, we have been taught that there is there is an authoritative system that we are subservient to. Right. Yes. <laughs> so yes. so, I, you know, for a long time, my colleagues and I, we had this hypothesis that, you know, because with cannabis, it's not like getting a prescription where the doctor tells you take exactly this many milligrams exactly this many times per day for exactly this amount of time and you will be better right that is prescriptive in nature whereas with cannabis all we can say is all right here's your card try to buy something that makes sense at the dispensary and good luck we'll see you in three months right and so that puts a person a patient in the um, driver's seat that they have to, there is no option to just follow someone else's guidance. They have to figure it out for themselves. And because everyone's no cannabinoid system is so different, um, what works for one patient doesn't necessarily work for another. So it really is like you, the, you're sort of forced to be empowered in your own journey. And my colleagues and I have a hypothesis that, you know, if we ever were to get to the point where we could be prescriptive with it. Okay, take this tincture, this many milligrams, this many times per day for this long, and you'll be better. If we ever got to that point, my hypothesis is that we would lose some of the efficacy of cannabis because people are no longer in the driver's seat, right? They're taking direction from the outside. Um, So, you know, it was really interesting as a first year postdoc, you know, I'm hardcore electrophysiologist with a you know, Mm -hmm. pharmacology background. And I sat in on, I I was a postdoc in Australia. And the way that they look at chronic pain is totally different than the way that we look at chronic pain in the US. And I sat in on this panel where, you know, um, these severely impacted pain patients, people with really traumatic injuries, spinal crush, the whole thing. um, You know, they had gone through this like six week training program where they learned all of these like coping tools, meditation, cognitive behavioral therapy, wow. yeah. almost none of them were on any pharmaceutical drugs whatsoever. You know, cannabis still wasn't available there, you know, at the time. Um, this is, you know, a number of years ago. And, you know, at the same time, these patients are sitting on the stage in front of everyone saying, "Yeah, my, my pains at like, oh, I don't know, like an eight today. And they're just perfectly lucid and having this conversation mm-hmm. and that the magnitude of the pain wasn't at all impacting their experience of daily life. And I was like, what am I doing trying to make better medicine if all of this cognitive yeah. control and coping of pain, if that's so powerful, why are we taking medicine at all?
1: <laughs> right? right. Well, I mean, there's a lot to be said for um the role of mindfulness and the power of, of intention and thought, you know, on our physiology is something we don't even, we have not even uh, the, like the, the beginning stages of, of starting to understand some of that stuff. And we even know like with pain, the endocannabinoid system is involved in the placebo response of pain. And so it, it even gets complicated of like, Oh gosh, when you start to even study these things, like how do you separate the influences of the mind you know, versus the influences of this drug you're trying to study and, and understand against chance, you know, is it actually doing something or not? Um, I love hearing that because I know just, again, just for myself, and I'm lucky because my wife is a mental health therapist. So I get uh, a lot of feedback about mental health and the roles of mindfulness and EMDR and all sorts of other things that are very powerful, very powerful tools. Um, but this is something I've wondered about myself. I'm like, if you started at this place, if you started at, well, let's talk about how you are in touch with your own body, how you're perceiving your internal stimuli and your external stimuli, and how do you how do you relate to that? And then how do you respond to that? Um, people would be at a very different baseline of treatment. Um, and so I... I'm so glad you brought that up because that is a very important thing for people to uh, to think about, um, that we, we especially here in the United States, we have hardly even begun to, to integrate and think much of. There are some hospitals and other places that are getting into mindfulness and trying to take some of those approaches, but it's still so small compared to some other countries.
0: Yeah. And Jason, I really love that you brought up the P word. Placebo, right? Yeah. Because in in America, the P word has a negative connotation, right? right? This is a bad thing. This is snake oil. This is you know uh, fake medicine, yeah. um, and that is truly not at all the very. It doesn't do justice to yes. the very yeah. rich, like complex power that lies in the 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 power of expectation. So I often, you know, uh, in some circles, people use the word intention. My intention with right, this medication right. or my intention with this, you know, mindfulness modality is to, you know, go in this direction or have this goal. Um, but it, you know, another way to think about it is the expectation, right? If yeah. I buy and I, you know, I, I do not condone these terms, but I'll use them as an example sure, of the yeah. power of expectation, which is if I buy an indica as a <laughs> consumer, yeah, yeah, I am setting up myself for the expectation that I will have a nice chill evening with a cup of tea. Whereas if I am a consumer and I buy a sativa, right, I am using that expectation. I am setting myself up for a particular um, you know, goal or or a journey, um, and so um, I, I I think that the the power of our expectation um, is just as powerful as the substance itself, and really what we end up with at the end of the day is a three way collaboration between our physical you know bodies, our endocannabinoid system, our very rich consciousness, including our expectations or our intentions, as well as you know, how the substance um, is a catalyst or opens a right. gate for the, all three of those things to interact in very unique ways.
1: Yes, absolutely. And uh, funny enough, I, this wasn't really our intention, but this has all segued really, really well into the research study that just came out that is the reason that we got together that we were going to talk and uh, there's several things we just touched on that I want to sort of highlight before jumping into it. And one is um, the role of intention and expectation in the subjective experience of cannabis, because that's certainly a concept that I think we're about to talk about. Um, but then also, you mentioned early on that your work in opioid research it, it comes from this like uh, I think you used the term translational perspective, like really trying to find good questions to ask and ways to try to answer them that are um most practical and applicable um that can help people relatively quickly um and less theoretical Um, and so this this recent study that published i think really um kind of falls into to all of these concepts that we're talking about and so uh the study i'm referring to if anyone wants to look it up before we dive into it the title is the Nose Knows, so very easy to remember there. Um, I always love a good research article that has a memorable title that people will actually be able to go back and look up. Um, so The Nose Knows, Aroma But Not THC Mediates the Subjective Effects of Smoked and Vaporized Cannabis Flower. Um, so we, we've talked a little bit about, you know, the work that you did. You got back to Oregon around 2017, the Cultivation Classics going on. Um, this study, uh, some folks that maybe have just seen headlines and things may not realize that this study is a result of um, that work that goes back to the cultivation classic that you're talking about, Even, even though the data doesn't necessarily come from 2017. I mean, really, this study comes from the very beginning of you coming back to Oregon, seeing what's going on and starting to think through, just like you said, how do we collect better data and what do we do with that data? So with with that little setup, do you mind explaining um, um, the study in general? Um, kind of what data points that you're trying to gather from the cultivation classic participants, and um, kind of how the outcomes were maybe a little surprising and not surprising in some areas, and and what their practical implications could be for people.
0: Yeah, of course. You know, I should state that you know the the paper. That our intent was never to, you know, do the cultivation classic as a research project, right? Um, it the research is kind of a byproduct right, of, right. you know, of of the of the cup, and so you know when we were um, doing the cup, you know, in beginning in twenty seventeen is when we started designing the surveys, right? So. What information do we even want to ask of our judges? So that, you're right, the, the work predates you know, the paper by many years. Um, so what kind of information do we want to ask? And that was largely revolved around how do we best celebrate objectively the best cannabis in Oregon, mm-hmm. right? What yeah. what does the best cannabis really look like? So we knew that you know, some of the things that were important were Um, You know, our our cultivators were telling us that aroma is really important, right? Like, and you all know, if you you live in Oregon, then you have the benefit of having a deli style flower experience. (laughs) You can literally walk into a dispensary and stick your nose in an ounce and it's wonderful. But for folks who might be listening in California or Washington or other markets, you know these closed container markets, you don't have that benefit that, that the Oregonians do. Um, and this paper, and we'll get there eventually. This paper demonstrates that that is a real disservice that your regulators are, you know, forcing you into. You're completely devoid of the most important information you could possibly have to make a purchasing decision, right? You have to be able to smell it. Um, so, so we knew, you know, beginning in 2017, we started designing the surveys to really get at, like, you know, just objectively, what is the best cannabis? Um, and so, you know, when, when we were launching those surveys, which have changed very, very little over the years, right? We I feel very grateful that we spent so much time in the early days, really forming that, those survey questions, um, because we, we knew we wanted to have, apples to apples comparisons over the years of the Cups. That was really important. So um, once we, our approach always, you know, um, was if you, uh, we we take a data-driven approach, which is not a Silicon Valley buzzword. It's a real thing (laughs) in that you don't go into it with an agenda. You let the data tell the story to you. And so we we knew that, you know, based on the scientific literature, that um, there were certain things that were likely to pop up. So, for example, we knew that we would probably see sex differences um, Mm -hmm. because, you know, the literature tells us that females initially are more sensitive to the effects of THC, but they develop tolerance more rapidly and they're more likely to have negative experiences at higher doses of THC. Yeah. So just from that information from you know both preclinical and human literature we knew that okay we're we're probably going to have a ladies choice award we're going to find a flower yeah. that women love and that men don't so much and sure enough year after year we always have the ladies choice award that is in 100% just based on the data what what do our female judges like more Um, another really great example is that, you know, in all of the process of analyzing the data, we discovered that, you know, older people tend to enjoy cannabis more than younger people. Mm. So, um, we looked at just those judges and said, okay, let's, let's exclude everyone else. And of these people, you know, who are over 40, over 50, over 60, um, what flowers do they like the best? right? Yeah, and so yeah. from that information, we were able to give out the Silver Fox Award, right? Nice. Yeah. Um, and of one of our two other really important awards that we've given out over the years were, number one, the Credible Cultivar. So this is mm. the one that had the most consistent reports, the lowest standard deviation, the lowest variability in the judge's answers. So, you know, for, for some flowers, it's all over the place, right. very polarizing. Some people love them, some people don't love them at all, you know, and, yeah. and everything in between. But if you sort of like graph out the variability in, in in enjoyment, you can see that there is at least one outlier on the very tail end. Everyone loves it, everyone agrees, right? So that that's our credible cultivar. Um, and so over the years we we, you know, that was one of our flagship awards. But, you know, um, the most important award that we have ever given out has always been the Nose Nose Award. And okay. it, the, that term specifically came to us from legacy growers who have okay. known this for years, right? Um, I've been seeing little comments in social media, you know, in the aftermath of the publication of the paper. like, yeah, I've been saying this for you know, to everybody for for a long time. This is the only way I ever buy cannabis. Yes, great. Then you're yes. ahead of the curve because yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, this is a direct homage to all of our legacy cultivators who, for decades, before we had the pressures of THC potency, before we had, you know, any sort of objective markers of yeah. what it was we were growing at all we instinctively followed our noses. So that's that's a direct homage to all of our legacy cultivators who have been breeding on the basis of aroma for a very long time. Yeah. So our nose nose award, we have consistently over the course of the competitions, we have always seen this positive correlation between a pleasant aroma and a pleasant effect. So What's important about the paper is that, you know, number one, I think it's really important that all of your listeners are aware that the way that these cups are, are executed, this is a double blind evaluation, mm-hmm. which means that the judges don't know what they're consuming. And when I'm analyzing the data, I don't know what they consumed either, right? Yeah, so that's right. the nature of double blind. The researcher doesn't know what they got and they don't know what they got. So in that way, we're able to remove any external biases, any potential, you know, expectation effect or placebo effect. You know, we're just able to strip all of that away and see what does the plant do in and of itself when there's no information about what it is.
1: We're going back Um, to the 90s. (laughs)
0: So, so that's really powerful. And, you know, a lot of other cups do, you know, blinded some, Mm -hmm. some parts of their, of their processes are blinded. Um, but I, I, I don't have enough visibility into those cups to know if it's double blind, right? If the people analyzing the data are also blinded, I just don't know. Um, So, so yeah, so what's really important is that, you know, these are all unbiased, objective answers, right? And so we're able to make, you know, extremely confident conclusions about this cultivator truly deserved this award. Because there are no sources of bias, there are no pay to play dynamics, there are no popularity contest phenomenon happening. This person who's stepping up on stage to accept their trophy, they earned it, they really, really earned it. And that's, that's what our primary driving force has been to be able to objectively reward those brands and those cultivators and, you know, prop them up and celebrate them so that their businesses could thrive. So and that, They've been really that's... waiting
1: for that, too. I mean, I get complaints and for years and years. um, Growers have complained to me, uh, particularly when Oregon's, what was that, 2016? Um, well, really, a little before that. So dispensaries went legal in the medical market in Oregon in, uh, what, 2014 or something, around that time. And it was pretty much right as dispensaries were legitimized that growers started complaining of, like, they don't seem to care about the smell anymore. Like it's, I've got to get the THC number above 20%, above 25%. Um, and so, I mean, it was like immediately that, that Mm -hmm. race started happening. And I mean, I watched growers stop growing because they were like, well, I like what I grow, but in this market of needing to hit these crazy numbers, Like, it's not really what I'm trying to do. And my stuff tests at 16% and nobody wants it anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, So growers, uh, particularly those craft growers that appreciate quality beyond THC, as most of them do, because that's, like you said, that's where they've, that's their history. That's where they've come from. Um, They appreciate this, you know, um, the work that you've put in to really ensure that people that are getting these awards are, you know, that it's really the, the people making fairly unbiased, as unbiased as can possibly be, um, reports on what they think about all of this. I mean, it's, I think that's, um, undervalued because a lot of the growers kind of get forgotten as the laws change, um, all yeah. the legacy growers.
0: Well, I think that, you know, you've highlighted something really important, which is this, the retail intake floor, Right. So yeah. we, hear, we hear from outdoor cultivators, I know which of my flowers are the best, and I right. can't bring them to market because no one will buy them because they test at 17%. That artificial floor where the retail intake manager says, no, I'm not a, my boss says I'm not allowed to buy anything South 20 Right, yeah. Yeah. so that is narrowing the choices for the consumer, and we know from the scientific literature that medical patients prefer balanced ratio products, right? Lower yeah. potency products, products that have a mix of THC and CBD. And even in a really wonderful market like Oregon, you go into any dispensary and they might have three CBD dominant flowers oh, yeah. if yeah. they're it's, lucky, it's they might have no type two flower at all. And what I mean yeah, by type yep. two are the ones that have a, a balance of THC yep. and CBD, sometimes sold as a one-to-one or a two-to-one. Some of them don't have one, not a single one. Yep. Um, and then, you know, 35 out of 36 flowers on the menu are north of 20% THC. That is yep. um, an arbitrary um, uh, human-induced phenomenon. And so, that's a, that's a really great starting point and really get great context for, you know, it, and it's a feed forward cycle too, because, you know, they're in the paper, we, we go into the background of why do people want potency in the first place? Why do right, we, right. why, why do we search for THC? No one seems to question that at all. It's just a you know, a given that you would try and call around all over town trying to find the most milligrams of THC for the lowest dollar. Why are we doing that? <laughs> right? THC it's makes like... the weed good. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. So, <laughs> um, so, so that, that there's an inherent ins- assumption there that THC equals quality. Yeah. Yep. And this paper demonstrates that that is not the case that yes, if we look at the science, the science tells us that THC gets you high right? There is a direct relationship between consuming THC and experiencing a subjective high consuming THC and experiencing impairment, right? Not being able to drive. (laughs) Um, there is a relationship there, right? Let's no bones about it. THC causes these, um, you know, psychological effects, but let's Let's question whether or not impairment and intoxication are the same thing as enjoyment, right?
1: Right. Yes. Those
0: two things are different. And so that's what the cup really focused on. It wasn't how high did you get? It was how much did you enjoy this? And so, you know, our argument is that the primary criteria for cannabis is that it should be enjoyable. Um, Maybe some people think that, you know, blasting off to the moon and getting as high as they can possibly get. Maybe some people do enjoy that. But I can tell you, I've had many conversations with many people from many walks of life over the course of my 19 years as a cannabis researcher. And more often than not, people say, I love it, but it's too strong. I can't even take one hit So you know that one time that I took two hits and I had a bad experience, it's just not for me. And we are doing this planet a disservice by by making weed too potent. Shouldn't if like you would think? I I feel like the heady hemp folks have really Mm -hmm. like cornered, like honed in on this thing where if if a person needs to smoke the whole joint in order to get to the point where they feel happy. That inherently means you're selling more biomass, right? Right. So <clears throat> yeah, why wouldn't exactly. you do that? Yeah. <laughs> you're yep. going to sell, you know, ten times as many pounds. So um, this idea of backing away from THC potency um, is utterly and thoroughly supported by the data. So the results from our double-blind analysis of the effects of real-world cannabis in healthy adults in Oregon. And these are adults who come from very diverse backgrounds, right? Right. This is not a panel of, you know, cannabis connoisseurs and celebrities and tough tokers. This is a census representative sample of people from the Portland metro area from all walks of life. Um, And So when we look at how real-world cannabis affects those diverse people, um, we find that there is absolutely no relationship between either the potency, the THC percentage, and how much they enjoy it, nor the dose of THC mm-hmm. and how much they enjoy it. And those things have been shown with NIDA cannabis before, right? The research right. cannabis that comes from the government. The similar things have been shown. If you take one or two or three hits, it doesn't change how much you quote enjoy. The product or you would, you know, rate it as uh, likely to use it again. So we also found no relationship between the terpene expression and enjoyment. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, you know, terpenes are not at all hating on terpenes. Terpenes are, you know, great, but it's only one component, one additional component of the plant. Um, it's one feature, one chemical, you know, one one class of chemicals. So we don't find any relationship between how much how terpy it is and how much people enjoy it what we do find is that when the people smell the flower the better the higher the aroma rating the more likely the the subjective experience is going to be enjoyable that's really important And I should also say that, you know, the size of this data set is huge. Yeah, I was going to note on
1: that if you didn't. Yeah, it's the sample size is very good. Yeah, thousands of of
0: surveys. Exactly. So we have 270 some unique humans. um, And we have over, I think, 3,600 individual consumption sessions. That's a massive amount of data. Bigger than any other human data set on cannabis consumption in the entire world in all of human history. This is not small. Yeah. This is a very well-powered study. Um, and so we can extremely confidently say that aroma contributes to the subjective enjoyment of cannabis, but other phytochemical features like terpenes and cannabinoids do not.
1: Well, and it's <clears throat> There's several things that jump out to me there that I wanted to make sure to highlight to folks that are making sense of the the paper one is that um you know i'm i'm so glad that the paper pointed out that even if you have the terpene data that that's still not really enough and i you know i've mentioned on social media and in my classes and things i harp on this that uh, unfortunately there haven't been more studies on this but there's at least one that has shown that terpenoids only account for about half of the perceived aroma Um, that people get from cannabis and a lot of the rest of that are aldehydes and other things some of those actually being degradation products of terpenoids but still um, there's there are some compounds in cannabis that are there in very low concentrations lower than what you measure for traditional terpenoids that are presenting more of an aroma impact um, than some terpenoids that we see at, at sizable concentrations so it's it's important for people to understand that with all of the hype around terpenes and terpenoids, that there's still a bigger picture. And what you perceive and what you have data for, those don't always um, um, you know, connect cleanly. Um, and so that's one thing I love about the study is that it really did focus on that subjective perceived aroma, which transcends the limitations that we have currently around, um, you know, cannabis testing, and most cannabis testing labs don't test for, um, you know, volatile aldehydes um, and uh, ketones and other things like that, because there's not enough demand or interest, and it costs money to do. <clears throat> and so I, it's important for people to understand that if you're focused just on testing data, you're not ever going to have the data you need to make the best decision for yourself, really. It really comes 100%. down to... A, other cues. And this is why going back even hundreds, thousands of years, why organoleptic training was so important. Um, because with medicinal plants, this is actually something that's, you know, this study mimics what has been learned about other medicinal plants, um, which is that you really have to pay attention to things like aroma, color, presentation, all sorts of other things that, um, are challenging to, um, quantify in a very, you know, um, reductionist way there's too many variables lots of variables Mm -hmm. so many variables um and so there's that piece but then the other piece is how unique this is to the individual that what what smells good to you is likely to work well for you but you can't necessarily translate that to someone else Uh, someone else may perceive that aroma differently has a different you know, physiological, uh, psychological makeup, all these different variables. So that was another thing I really appreciated is pointing out that this doesn't then mean that you start to quantify all of these aromas and then say, we're using this to tell you what's best for you now, rather than indica sativa or terpene concentrations. But rather, like, it really highlights cannabis, just like a lot of other things in life, is a highly individualized thing, and it requires a much broader um, context and perspective. Um, and it really cannot be reduced cleanly to, you know, this is going to affect you this way. If you have something high in terpeniline, it's going to make your heart race. Like, no, um, unfortunately that's just not, not how it works at all. Um, and so your study went a long way to really kind of, um, bring those, those issues to the forefront, which I appreciated.
0: Yeah, I was really excited by that data too. You know, there's a specific paper in the uh, figure in the paper that shows you know how much consensus is there around what smells good. Yeah. And for a small population of flowers, there's, uh, and this is really interesting. The better a flower smells, the the higher its aroma rating was across the judges. The more people agreed. So there's mm-hmm. less variability when you have a really, really nice smelling flower. So we can all kind of come together and say, "Yeah, this small collection of flowers. These are everyone the best. in all <laughs> of, all the people in this room agree these smell good." But as you as the aroma scores were lower there was a huge amount of variability They were very polarizing. There were some flowers that some people rated incredibly low for the, you know, mm-hmm. pleasantness of the aroma and the same flower, other people's rated very high. And our, that was one of the other, you know, significant findings But the, there, there is a high degree of consensus when things smell really, really good. So those, those are aromas we want to, you know, hone in on and figure out what they were um but but you're absolutely right that the the take-home conclusion from that figure is that everyone needs to smell it for themselves because just because the intake manager at the dispensary didn't like the way it smelled doesn't mean that you are also not going to like the way it smells right so there is room for both um some flowers do objectively smell better and um, there is also room for individual preferences. I think the analogy that I rely on heavily with this idea is that it, of the perfume world, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the perfume is by far the best analogy we have here. And the fine fragrances and, and consumer fragrances industry is like light years ahead of us. In, yes, in terms yeah. of Like, you know, all this stuff. But, you know, we can all most of us can, you know, put, put our heads together and say, yeah, this Chanel perfume smells really great. And then if we take, you know, some cheap mall perfume and we we all smell it, we're going to have some people that say, oh yeah, I would totally wear that. And everybody else is like you, right. (laughs) Yep, That is a good
1: analogy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: But, but there's room for individual preferences. And I think, There's probably also room for trends, right? There's probably, mm -hmm. as these flowers, you know, we're tinkering with them and we're, you know, um, encouraging them to diversify and and create new compounds or increase, you know, the aromatic features in this Mm -hmm. way or another, our preservation techniques, right? How we we preserve the, the chemicals that those flowers make all of that is constantly changing. And so it's, it's also likely that just like with the perfume world, one year oud or sandalwood is really popular. And then that goes out of fashion and something else pops up. Uh, you know, I could, I could see that the industry could go that way as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And another thing I wanted to touch on about the study, um, were this is something that generally don't remember We're um, were all of the judges experienced cannabis consumers? I know the levels of their experience varied, um, but was, was there a representation of, I guess, what um, often in research is called naive users or uh, you know, folks that really don't consume very much at all? Um, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, we had a wide range of folks. Um, you know, The majority of people were people who you know consume cannabis daily or multiple times a week.
1: Right, because if they're going to be um, a judge, had- they probably have some experience
0: yeah our inclusion criteria was specifically you need to have some recent experience within the last six months you have to have used some kind of thc and that captures a broad range of people mm-hmm. we wanted to set people up we didn't we didn't want entirely naive people because even though it's a relatively low risk behavior oh you know right, using cannabis, right. relatively low risk at the same time you know we're giving people a blind kit right and they might have a bad experience because they might get too high. You know, it's right. not fun to yep. be too high. So we didn't want people to have a bad time, right? Mm-hmm. So the the inclusion criteria was some recent experience in the last six months. Um, what's really interesting, and we talk about this in the paper, is that, and there are other studies that show this, people tend to self-titrate. So right. that is, yeah. they take a puff and then they wait a second, check in and say, okay, I'm where... I'm happy. I'm where I want to be. And so they stop consuming. And so we see in the, in the data that, you know, the, the, the um, amount of cannabis that people are most likely to consume is extremely small. Um, yeah. You know, it's very rare that people would um, consume more than a quarter of a gram in a single session. And that we're also making the assumption that they smoked the whole thing. They, they might not right, have. Right. we might have yeah. overestimated how much THC they consume. Um, but yeah, we, we, we definitely made a mindful, you know, attempt to recruit diverse people from all walks of life with all kinds of levels of tolerance, as well as all kinds of expectations, you know, what they typically think Mm -hmm. of when, when. As we asked them, you know, what do you consider a good cannabis experience, we gave them like seven answers or a range Mm -hmm. of answers from I don't want to feel anything at all to I want to be on in a different, you know, dimension. And, um, and most people would say that they want a prominent shift in their Mm -hmm. normal perception, right, they want to feel different. Um, so, you know, that's, uh, there are a a handful of people who, you know, want something a little bit more mild, but the vast majority of people say, I want to feel different, much different than my normal life. Yeah.
1: Yeah. As those of us on the streets would say, I just want a head change. (laughs) Right. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And where I'm, where my head's going with this that I'm thinking about now, it's like, okay, we have some understanding of the role that aroma plays, um, when people are, Making decisions that have some familiarity with cannabis now what I'm what I'm interested in is what does that transition look like from a new user to an experienced user um, because it makes me think of like for instance wine tasting how um, when you first start drinking wine it's kind of confusing and there's a lot going on and it sort of all seems the same but for some reason people think it's different mm-hmm. and then over time you start to appreciate. Uh, subtle flavors and aromas and notes and things um, differently, your whole experience changes and so i'm i 'm very interested now to think about um, those changes that happen from when someone decides to use cannabis for the first time, how they get acquainted with those aromas and their sort of relationship to them and everything, and then how that translates into sort of a a change in preference over time for cannabis that they like. That'd be really interesting. I don't know how you'd follow that. I mean, you'd have to have genuinely new patients and follow them for at least a year or something probably, but um, that'd be fascinating to see how the, the aroma element plays into that, um, that part of, of um, cannabis and, and something I really wanted to highlight, you already touched on, but I wanted to make sure that we really unpack this, which is the direct impact that this has on patients people that are in medical cannabis uh, places with medical cannabis or recreational cannabis um, that, like you said, don't have the option to um, organoleptically evaluate anything. Um, This is a, this should be a wake up call um, both for patients, clinicians and regulators, hopefully. Um, I, I hope that when people read this, they, they understand that, that like, This has more implications than just, like, isn't it interesting to know, you know, what resonates with people, what works best, but also the way cannabis is being regulated is detrimental to patients if they're not allowed to organoleptically evaluate what they consume before they buy it.
0: 100%. You're absolutely right that, you know being able to watch how someone's journey evolves over time requires that they have options, right? Right. And so how is it that we go about creating the structures that give consumers and patients options? Um, so right now, the dispensary shelf is not very diverse. And so in order to um, enhance that diversity, we need to be able to create value for aroma where currently most of the value is placed in THC potency. So if a bud tender knows the aroma is really important for a person to be able to make a decision even if that person can't smell the flower themselves, number one, that's a problem. So you need to you know, mm-hmm. um, work with the regulators to find a way for the consumer to be able to smell the product. So number one, yeah. let's eliminate that barrier. Right now, this paper demonstrates that the number one criterion for what a top shelf flower should be should be its aroma not its potency. There are other things that, that probably matter to sort of sure, a, yeah. as a, um, a quality, you know, uh, agricultural product, you know, regenerative farming practices, sure. yeah, socially responsible capitalism, BIPOC and women owned businesses. Those are all really important things that we also see in coffee and tea and other agricultural right, right. commodities. Right. So yes, all of that too. But right now a top shelf flour should be the best smelling flour, top shelf yeah. flour, should have the highest wholesale value and the highest retail price. The best smelling flowers, you should pay for them. So um, so that's what the dispensary shelf should look like. It should be an evidence-based dispensary shelf, not an arbitrarily stocked dispensary shelf. So let's give people options that make sense from an evidence standpoint. Um, so yes, let, us eliminate the barriers to actually smelling the product, but if we can't, well, what else could we do? We could have people who have organoleptic training at the, at the field, right? The the breeders and the cultivators are already very well trained in this way, and they can transmit that training and that value to their wholesalers and their distributors, but those wholesalers and distributors must also have the yes. aroma as a value, right? So they 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 can't just be like, yeah, 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 whatever you say, you know, Farmer Tom or whoever you are, <laughs> right? Um, they have to also be on board. Yes, yeah. aroma is a value. Aroma is important, and we are also going to transmit that value. So wholesale um, and um, sort of vertical operations, there wherever you have buckets of cannabis in a 50-degree warehouse, you better bet that there's somebody in that building who has gone through in-depth sensory training to so, assess aroma, right? Yep. So aroma is really complex because it's both the hedonic value, how nice does right, this smell? Right. Yep. There's also aroma characteristics, what does it smell like? And there's also aroma potency. How loud is it? Mm-hmm. Right. And we often tend to conflate those things. Some people will, will purchase loud products. Um, and some, some aromas are louder than others, even at very low levels of, um, aromatic molecules. Terpeniline right. is a great example. You can have a tiny little dose of terpeniline and it smells like terpenoline, right? Yeah. It's very very potent, so it's really difficult as an untrained you know person to yeah. be able to to tease those things apart. It smells like terpenylene, it has a an intense aroma, and it smells good. So all three of those components. So if yeah. you are a wholesale operator, um, a distributor, or a, a, a vertical, then you you better right now start looking around for people who are graduating with their PhDs from sensory evaluation programs.
1: And they're they're out there too. Like I want to point out to people, like this is something uh, that kind of taps into some of my like natural products work um, outside of cannabis, but like, you absolutely can get trained to do this. You can find, um, especially in the um, like through APA and other organizations out there that work with, um, botanicals a lot. Um, you can find training programs and things for organoleptic training. Um, and, uh, it's awesome. I've gone through a couple myself. Um, it's been a long time, but, and it's one, it's really, really fun, <clears throat> but the, it has very, um, interesting value. It like going back to the wine tasting thing. Once you go through it, you think about your senses differently. You have different language to describe what you're experiencing And you come up with ways to rate those things. Um, And there's always limitations with that. But you can learn what's already being used in the botanical world broadly that has been in use for a while now and is constantly being improved. Um, You can find those programs and join them. And I really encourage people to. um, There are some that come from within the industry as well, people trying to train people on smelling stuff out. Um, I don't really know much about any of those programs, but I just say there's already... Like you're saying, the perfume industry, the natural products industry, there are all these industries that have been focusing on this for a really, really, really long time and already have uh, modalities in place mm-hmm. to, to do all of this. So I encourage people to, to look into that. Um, there's a lot yeah. out there.
0: I think the the only one that we didn't directly address, which we kind of hinted at before, was the sort of arbitrary potency floor, right? So you're Right, right. Um, you know, we have the regulators have a job, they have to make sure that people can smell the product, um, the, you know, all of the, the middle people in the supply chain, they have to be able to um, assess aroma, you know, for the consumer, even if the regulators won't let the consumer yeah. smell the product. But we also, every single person, and I don't use the M word very often because, but I have to in this case, because it's on our, our legal books. Um, sure. sure yep. people in Oregon when they get their marijuana handlers card part of the criterion for obtaining your card is you should learn that potency yeah. is not related to enjoyment aroma is related to enjoyment so that from the very day you know we know that retail salespeople that's a high turnover job you're constantly getting a new a new you know um, a face every time right. um, but it's very important that the, you know, the value of aroma is passed down the chain of custody from the breeder to the wholesaler and distributor to the retail intake manager, right? They have to be willing to pay more money for the better smelling flowers. And then the retail salesperson has to tell us, here are our top shelf flowers and we know they're top shelf because of the best smelling ones, yeah. right? So by that means we're gonna end up having a wide array of potencies, which is exactly what we would hope for the consumer to be able yep. to choose from, right? We we've got to end this phenomenon of people saying to me, 80 I'd really like to like cannabis, but it's all too strong. It's all yeah. way too strong, right?" So, so yeah, I, I think that there's roles for for all of us in in this. You know, if you go to a dinner party, you know, over the holidays, this can be something that you talk about, right? But yeah. Um, we all have a role in spreading this information to help one another uplift this industry to something that's more evidence-based and more practical and gentler on people.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'm I'm glad you brought that up because this probably will be the last episode of the year um, that I release. So people might be listening to this literally on the way to <laughs> Christmas dinners and things. So good, good conversation topic. And, and to reiterate too, because you, you did bring this up, but I think it's important to remind people of right now um, aroma needs to be valued and the varying cannabinoid, uh, ratios, those two things, like I was uh, a strain that I liked a lot. Um, again, it's like talking about controversial industry terms. Can I say strain? Um, but, uh, <laughs> one strain that I used to love for my back pain was lemon remedy, which I think was a three to one or a four to one. um, And it was great. It was still THC dominant, but um, quite a bit of CBD in it. Um, And I found personally that that worked better than almost anything else. Um, But again, um, when things started to change, when legalization hit Oregon, because there was a brief period of time in the medical scene where you could find those ratios. People were playing around with them. It was a novel thing. So you would you would find them but they disappeared so quick. And as a patient myself, that was devastating. I was like, yeah, so what do I do now? Like get CBD and, and high THC products and then like grind them and mix them together to make my own ratios. Like, you know, that's what it comes down to. Mm -hmm. And, um, so, you know, highlighting all these things that, that need value, these organoleptic properties, and please, please start valuing those cannabinoid ratios more, because um i think i personally do think we would see a lot better more consistent outcomes um and better um like you're saying for people that are getting into cannabis that are new i think we'd see better um outcomes and com- sort of a dosing compliance and things like that um mm-hmm. if we you know valued those things more and i can't think of really a better way to end the podcast for this year other than with this discussion because I mean, we really are hitting on these core, core issues that um, affect everyone in the industry from the craft growers that are trying to survive and are being undervalued to patients that are being misled by marketing or being told they need to focus on qualities that really statistically probably don't have any bearing on on their outcomes. I mean, on so many levels, um, if we can just start to value aromas and cannabinoid ratios more, um, dramatic improvements could happen to um, uh, what we call the cannabis industry at large, both, both on the scientific and medical side and on the adult use, um, dare I say, recreational side. Um, there's a lot of improvements to be had just by recognizing these simple um, concepts, which um, your research has done a lot to um, prove out and again just to highlight some of the important points here the sample size like go check it out but i mean we're this isn't a small there's so many small cannabis studies that get published with maybe a dozen participants or something we're talking about hundreds of people thousands of reports um a lot i mean as a researcher i know uh, i hate statistics it, it makes me shudder and especially when you're thinking about that many data points um it makes me nervous to even consider um so a ton of work went into this, a ton of thought, um, even like you said, even before you even had the idea of making a study out of this, just the thought of how do we get better data to understand what people like? Um, there's a lot of, a lot of energy and, and thoughtfulness that went into this publication. I want to make sure people read it. And as we move into 2023, I hope, I plead, please, people, um, take heed, care more about Aroma focus more on individualized in-of-one um, um, concepts, what works for you no. may not work for someone else. Um, so maintaining that um, sort of space there for people to have things that work differently than you work for them. Um, and maybe we can try to bring more value to growers to these products no. that actually are more likely to help people um, that for the past several years have really um, been getting the shaft. So.
0: Well, yeah, and too, I think another great thing about the timing of our conversation, Jason, is the timing of the outdoor harvest, right? Right now, we have outdoor flowers that are curing right now. They're about to hit dispensary shelves. We're, We're having this discussion in early December. This is the perfect time of year to, just like you were talking about with wine, right? It takes a while to sample a bunch of things. You know, at first everything seems the same. You just get high, whatever, you know, but now is the perfect time of year to buy one gram of 17 different things and, you know, have your own, you know, process for exploring what the different sensations are. Because just like the, you know, sensations with, you know, the taste of wine the sort of psychological sensations that happen with all of these varieties of cannabis, you're going to get a lot of really cool experiences with these outdoor plants in particular, because the cannabis plant is incredibly sensitive to its growing environments. Yeah. And indoors, okay. we have the ability to very carefully control the environmental conditions, whereas outdoors outdoors, we're not in control of so much, right? We don't know exactly how long the summer is gonna be or how wet the autumn is gonna be or you know what the fluctuation in temperatures are gonna be like, if there are gonna be any pest pressures, what yeah. other plants are there to contribute to the mycorrhizal network in the root ball, right? There's yeah. so many variables that we can't control outdoors and that diversity in the environment contributes to the diversity of the chemicals which directly contributes to a diversity of experiences. So yep. I'd highly encourage you all, um, if you're listening to this, this is a perfect time of year to specifically shop for outdoor flowers. Ask your bud tender, well, what, what smells best? What was grown outside?
1: Yep, absolutely. All right. Well, I think this is a, a great place to cap it off. I hope that this discussion has been, um, very interesting to all of you. Um, you know, for those of us that have been in the industry for a while, this research really highlights things that, you know, we've been thinking about and trying to find evidence of for some time. Um, and so it's nice to to start to see some validation there. it's like, I'm not crazy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's a um, good feeling, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, it is. Like, all right. Um, especially, like I said, coming from the testing lab side, and understanding limitations around terpene testing and everything, it was so, so nice to see someone say, it's also not just about the terpenes or the terpene data. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, this was this was super awesome. I have actually one additional question, a nerdy question that just for me, I want to ask, which goes back to your electrophysiology research. Were you studying ion channels or what was, what was some of that work that you were doing?
0: Yeah, so I was a synaptic physiologist. So I specifically, yeah, I I looked at the relationship between the neuron that's sending the chemicals to talk to the second neuron. Mm -hmm. So sometimes, most of the time, I was witnessing things from the perspective of neuron number two. So I became a part of the electrical circuitry of that that postsynaptic neuron. And I would measure, okay, what happens when this cell dumps its neurotransmitters? And specifically, you know, I'm looking in the context of the endocannabinoid system. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we, we found some really interesting things in terms of adaptations that happen when animals are chronically exposed to morphine, mm-hmm. their endocannabinoid mm-hmm. systems adjust, right? So, so we know that those two systems um, are related in that way directly Absolutely. You know, in the endocannabinoid system.
1: What about, um, and and stop me if I'm rambling, because we've already gotten through pretty much everything. Like I said, I'm just nerding out here. Um, What about connections? You know, there are all of these receptor complexes that form, particularly with CB1 receptors. Do we see any, and it's been reported for, um, you know, uh, at least one or two subtypes of serotonin receptors and a few others. What about connections with dopamine receptors um, and cannabinoid receptors? I feel like that's something that doesn't get talked a lot, a whole bunch, but should play right into everything you've been studying.
0: Well, one of the reasons that um, cannabis produces feelings of well-being and mirth and euphoria is that those receptors exist in both the parts of our brain that are involved in reward. This feels good, therefore I'll do it again. That's reward and reinforcement. But also in the affective or limbic or emotional parts of our brain. You know, that's literally what is the sensation of euphoria and happiness and joy and the, the absence of stress and anxiety, right? So We know that the CB1 receptor, number one, it's the most ubiquitously expressed receptor of its kind in our entire central nervous system. It's actually really hard to find a part of the brain where the CB1 doesn't (laughs) exist, right? So we know that the CB1 receptor is involved in both of those processes. It is making us feel good emotionally. Um, as well as it is a rewarding substance, which is why right. you know some people when they overuse THC, they can develop a physical dependence, and they they need THC in order to have that baseline level of feeling good. So we know that you know cannabis use disorder is a real thing. You can overuse THC to the point where it is maladaptive; it's causing you more harm than right. good. Yeah. That's a real thing, and that's caused by the CB1 receptor in the reward pathway of our brain. But often we don't talk about the medical benefit of the affective effects, the emotional mood yeah. effects of cannabis. Cause one of the things that we find with our chronic pain patients, you know, 80 plus percent of people with chronic pain also experience mood disorder, like anxiety or depression. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of my, you know, deeply nerdy work gets at parts of the brain that process emotion. And we see that, With chronic pain, there is a neurological tether between the body sensations of pain and the emotional sensations Mm -hmm. of pain. These are two symptoms of a disordered, affective brain, right? So the emotional brain becomes disrupted. And when that happens, you have both the bodily sensation of pain and mood disorder. Yeah. So... Wouldn't it be nice if we had a pain medicine that addressed both of those symptoms of pain, the mood symptom of pain and right. the bodily sensation of pain? And lo and behold, we know what that is, right? <laughs> we know that cannabis yeah. is, is capable of addressing both of these components of chronic pain.
1: Yeah. Uh, it's super, super fascinating. Um, the interconnectedness of all of that. And then of course, thinking about connections to Parkinson's and other sort of dopaminergic disorders too. Um, yeah, super, super fascinating work. Um, well, I know I've kept you for almost, we've been going for almost an hour and a half. Thanks for, uh, entertaining my, my nerdy post questions and thanks so much for being willing to spend as much time and energy as you have today. Um, speaking to me, it's been a, Great conversation, as I figured it probably would be, Um, and everyone listening, if you've made it this far, first of all, thank you for listening all the way through, and um, definitely go look up the study. It's publicly available, which another thing I meant to commend you on, open source research. Um, Mm -hmm. I I always explain to people, I just published an open source paper, it is expensive to do. It is not free to do, Um, so thank you for doing that. I think people don't Mm -hmm. often realize that researchers end up paying to make that happen, unless yeah funding for it um so anyone can look this up the nose knows go check it out um, and go read through that start having these very important conversations um, with those of you those people around you that are connected to the industry or like cannabis in general um, they need to be thinking about these things stop asking your dispensaries for the highest thc product and life will get better for a lot of people um, And for those that want to learn more about your work um, and smart cannabis and all of all of the stuff that you've been involved in, are there any um, websites or anything you want to share? If there's anything you want to share with our listeners to sign off, I'll give you the floor to let people know how to learn more.
0: Well, first, I'd like to offer my gratitude, Jason, for the opportunity to talk about this work, because it was a huge community effort. This is not, you know, the the research itself was not funded. This is all the result of incredibly passionate and knowledgeable volunteers, Um, and, you know, we turned over the couch cushions to make sure that we yep. can get this paper out to the world. So I wanted to express my gratitude for the opportunity to amplify um, the results because it, it really has been an important community project here in Oregon um, for many years. So thank you for the invitation. Um, and I'd also like to thank specifically all of the people who, you know, made the cups possible, um, including Congressman Earl Blumenauer who came and spoke at all of our events um, so, you know, thank you, Steph Barnhart um, and Jeremy and all the rest of our, our team, the Smart Cannabis team. If, you're, if you'd like to get a hold of us or continue the conversation, there are really two good ways to find us, uh, smartcannabis.life. You can just, you know, fill out the contact form there. Um, and then I have a very narrow social media presence, which is a, an Instagram account, which is uh, DrPeriod d D-R. Period A B I E. Um, so you can find us there. So thank you so much for um, tuning into this conversation. I'm really grateful to be able to um, to express uh, the work in this way.
1: Absolutely. And I, I definitely appreciate it. Um, so with that, everybody, um, if you need to find Curious About Cannabis, you probably know where to find us already. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Just Search for Curious About Cannabis. Stay curious and take it easy. Bye bye everybody. If you're curious about cannabis like me, then get connected to the Curious About Cannabis ecosystem and let's learn together. Visit CACpodcast.com slash connect to join our learning community on our Discord server, and you can participate in regular giveaways, dive into the latest cannabis research connect with certified Curious About Cannabis educators, hang out in our break room with other curious minds, and more. Best of all, it's totally free. Just visit cacpodcast.com slash connect to learn more. Or click connect on the Curious About Cannabis app, which is available on Android and coming soon to iOS.